You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to the wheelhouse. I can't say enough about the maturation of J.P. Crawford. He has really stabilized our middle infield defense, and it's made everybody better. Starring Jerry Depoto. And Jerry Depoto to the plate with the 2-2 pitch to Alex. Swing and a miss. He struck him out on the fastball. With Aaron Goldsmith. We think T.Y. France would be yeah, a, a nice. T.Y. France. T.Y. Uh, France. T.Y. France. Uh, in any oh. event. <laughs> that has to stay in. That has to stay in. And Gary Hill Jr. He references WRC Plus. He's hanging out in the top ten in the American League. I mean, it is really impressive. It's time for the wheelhouse. Here's Aaron. Welcome inside another episode of the Wheelhouse Podcast. It is episode number 66. This is one of ours this season that is also on Root TV. So uh, for those of us uh, who are on Root Sports, you will see the condensed version of this conversation. If you need a little bit of a refresher, remember the full version you can find wherever you find your podcast. We go almost an hour each time with Mariners general manager Jerry Depoto and the best, let's call 25 minutes, make their way to Root Sports. With that in mind, uh, Jerry, it's good to see you, man. How are things going? It's good to be seen. I, I do want to pose this question, I guess, mostly to Gary. Who determines what the best 25 minutes are? Oh, that's it's because def- we don't get a vote. Do we? we do. I have no input on that. I feel like this is full uh, official scorers judgment. Gary. Well, they're all the minutes are pretty great, so it's really hard to pick a best 25. I have no say on the TV side, so I just have the audio side, and on the audio side, I just use it all. J- Jerry, let me put it this way. Let's just know that any minute that Gary is on, it's part of the best 25. That's right. Anytime I get to talk, that is staying in. <laughs> like right now, this is staying in. This is magical. I yeah. also love to know that, that Gary has the ultimate power when we're talking about matters of audio only. So th- at least these are lessons we're learning. That's good. It's good to have friends on the audio side and eventually on the video side as well. Hey, Jerry, uh, we got a lot to get to in this one. We're going to talk about your trade with the San Diego Padres. We have uh, gone back in the archives. Jerry found a real gem uh, during the quarantine months. Uh, Gary went through a bunch of tape, and he found you as a member of the Rockies facing the Mariners against Junior and A-Rod and a shift before shifts were cool. So we're going to go back into the uh, archives, and we've got video to support it as well. The whole thing is going to be great. We're going to talk about the really outstanding defense that we've seen almost all season and basically ever since the first maybe road trip of the year for the Mariners. The defense has been just a wonderful treat to watch on a regular basis Uh, and a lot more to get to. But, Jerry, first of all, man, I want to just express our condolences. Uh, We know we've done 65 of these podcasts and you've talked about Tom Seaver in 64 of them. And uh, we know that he is your baseball hero, man. He is your guy. And baseball is missing out on one of the all-time greats. Tom just recently passed away. So our condolences, man. We know that that must hit you hard. I appreciate it. And it did, you know, like you would expect. But I, I, I thought a lot, you know, in, in reflection uh, when he passed away. And, and my thought was that, uh, you know, it's tough to lose your heroes. And, you know, but there are heroes for a reason. And it, 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 it made you remember fondly, you know, the days growing up with the hat on and, and trying to emulate the delivery in the backyard. And, and then the, the, the obvious, which we've talked about, you know, getting to meet your heroes. That's uh, something entirely next level that I never could have expected in my life. 
but appreciate it. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and we're also going to take your fan questions on the podcast today. As always, we've got a stump JD, which is a pretty solid one, pretty topical one as well. We try to make them all fairly topical, but this one in particular. Uh, and this time the roles were reversed. Gary quizzed me on it, and it took me like four innings, but I eventually got it. So, yeah. I mean. There four was, innings? Four innings, <laughs> yeah. There was some miscommunication. I was also in the middle of doing play-by-play, -play, so <laughs> it was either my trivia was going to uh, be slowed down or my play-by-play, -play, and as it turns out, they both were. So, um, so getting on to more of the matters at hand, Jerry, hey, the last time we recorded, uh, we were talking about how great Austin Nola was, this incredible season, and then apparently uh, somebody in Baseball Ops sent the direct download link to A.J. Preller in San Diego. He took a listen and thought, man, I need to get Austin Nola in San Diego, brown and yellow. And then just a matter of like a day later or so, the big trade happens. Uh, let's take some uh, broad strokes on this first. Tell us how the trade went down because there were a lot of pieces to this. Uh, well, I, I guess in – in retrospect, when we had the, the, the last sit-down or the last version of the podcast, and we, we did focus on Austin so much, we were right in the midst of generally me being you know, rushed by A.J. Preller and the Padres regarding you know, their interest in Austin. And, and I, had, I had rebuffed the interest throughout, and we talked about it a lot internally, thought that Austin just made too much sense for us where we were, and, and uh, went through about a week or 10 days of that with you know, generally dismissive of the idea that we would trade him. Uh, and, and then Saturday morning, the Saturday morning prior to the trade deadline, you know, at the urging of Jesse Smith, who is, uh, is our director of analytics, and, you know, just playing values. You know, he's looking through the value of the what, what is a really flush San Diego Padres farm system and, and, you know, some players on their major league club that may or may not be available. And he just urged that we not dismiss this out of hand. Is there a deal that we would do? And, you know, lo and behold, A.J. Preller reached out Saturday morning and, and asked me, is, he said, we are willing to, to do a real deal here. You know, we'll, is, tell me what an overpay would look like. And I said, okay, uh, you know, I'll get back to you. And called him back a couple hours later and expressed to him what we thought an overpay might look like, which was the four names that we, that we received. And, and his response was, was pretty funny. He said, oh, my gosh. <laughs> There's a, and, then, and then said a couple of words that I won't repeat. And uh, he said, that's, that's, uh, that's not exactly what we were thinking. And then ultimately, you know, we corralled a couple of relievers in, in Austin Adams and, and Dan Altavilla and balanced out, you know, what we think was a, a really good trade, a good baseball trade, one that delivers, you know, now impact to a, to a playoff contender, not just a contender, but a real World Series threat, and, and really delivered for 25 or younger, controllable, athletic, good major league prospects or players to, to, to the Mariners. And, and I think, you know, we, we couldn't have been happier with the outcome. And, you know, not in my wildest dreams did I think that's the way the, the week would culminate, but it did, and, and we're thrilled for it. Tell us about Taylor Trammell and how you think he fits in to the system. You know, he's, first of all, a wonderful kid, just getting to, to meet him via telephone and, and having him punk me, you know, slap me around a little bit on the telephone was, was uh, I thought, hilarious. 
and you know I saw him this morning uh, down in in Tacoma and just such a pleasant guy to be around he's got a great smile he's got a great sense of humor he can also play you know he's he plays all three outfield spots but primarily center and left field he he is like the doppelganger for Denard Span I mean it's a it is really really similar in terms of his his build athleticism body type and you know having had the the I guess the fortune of seeing Denard when he was a 21 22 year old former first round draft pick and you know a center fielder at the time incredible athlete there are a lot of similarities and and, and I do think that some combination of of a Denard Span a, a Carl Crawford you know there's a lot of those athletic explosive type skills in Taylor and we think ultimately with with a little bit more uh, of a key turn in terms of of his swing he's got a good swing and he hits the ball hard you know how can we hit the ball hard in the air more often and and that's something we've had some success doing and and our hitting group has been terrific with uh couldn't be more excited to add him to the system and see where it takes us from here since you bring up the fact that he punked you a little bit, there are some folks that maybe haven't heard the story. Can you tell us what happened exactly? Sure. You know, I, I called Taylor. Among the, the, the guys we were calling, it was a pretty heavy phone call day in a, in a seven-player trade and many back and forths with A.J. Preller and et cetera. But, uh, you know, I called Taylor and welcomed him to the Mariners. And like I do with every player we acquire, I said, Taylor, it's Jerry DePoto with the Mariners. Welcome to the Amps. Just dead silence on the on the phone and 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 he let it drift for i mean 15 20 seconds which is not a short amount of time on a on a call so he showed some feel and and you know really he worked it and then he said wait what and i said i'm sorry have you not heard from the the padres and he he's again let five or ten seconds go by and he said yeah, yeah, man. I got. I'm just. I'm just playing around with you. And, you know, he said, oh, "I'm really happy. I got to get used to saying it's. You know, it's great to be in Seattle instead of it's great to be in San Diego." And and, and uh, we had a wonderful talk. You know, we recollected about the the time he was here in 2016 for for the pre-draft workout, uh, and and really just a, a really engaging young guy and and I felt like the personality it was very similar to his athleticism it really just jumps out at you the the first time you see him you know we had the same exact experience talking to him just a really great guy and it seems to be a common thread with a lot of the young guys we have conversations with Kyle Lewis Evan White you go down the list they just all seem like really good people when you're scouting, when you're looking at players, how much emphasis is character kind of off the field stuff? That's it. We put a very high emphasis on it. Now, you know, I, I'm going to give credit to Terry Ryan and the Minnesota Twins, who, you know, for a lot of years I, I really admired in the in the early 2000s through, you know, the, the wonderful team that they built, the, the that was built around players like Johan Santana and Brad Radke and you know Corey Koski and Tori Hunter, etc. I, I I always admired the quality of character that they were able to unearth. Michael Kadire, another, but the the quality of, of character in the players that they would sign and develop. And, and I thought the twins did such a wonderful job with that. And I once asked Terry, you know, how do you scout character? Because clearly it's a thing for you. And he said, Jerry, we don't do it differently than anybody else. We just take the best player. <laughs> and, you know, we, we, we have taken a little bit more of a measure and, you know, we, we do our best to try to get to know the players. We do talk a lot about character on draft day when we are trying to trade for a player 
And, you know, we, through the course of the last five years here, we've been really, I guess, engaging with our young players and trying to develop it. Because, you know, just like a baseball skill on the field, you can continue to develop character and the way, the, the way you lead. And that can go anything from on the field to in the community. And, and our, our players do a wonderful job with it. Most of them are wired, you know, to that way when they walk through the door, and and some others just watch the way the Kyle Lewis's and Evan White's and Logan Gilbert's and etc. behave, and then they do the same. Another part of the trade, uh, Ty France, or as uh, I think Gary's, I actually like where Gary's going with this. We think Ty France would be yeah, uh, a nice, Ty France, Ty France, oh. Ty France. Uh, in any event. <laughs> <laughs> that has to stay in. That has to stay in. <laughs> we, we actually, not to digress too far, but it is a podcast after all. We have wondered how great would it be if Ty France played for the Yankees just so John Sterling could have a Ty France home run call. I mean, that would be one of the great home run calls of all time. I have no idea what he'd come up with, but he'd probably sing the French anthem or something somehow. Don't you think? You have to have something, I, because I know you have a, a John Sterling impersonation. I have a voicemail from John. Clearly. I, I, I remember it being played, I believe, on this very uh, podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. And, it, you know, it, there's, there has to be a place in your life where you can practice the, your home <laughs> run call using, you know, your, your best John Sterling, and that can just become your thing for, yeah. for T.Y. France. Okay. Do it right now. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, right now. I, on the I, fly, uh, please, because yeah, I know right, you've practiced right this. I, I should practice on, on my way driving in each time. I am very excited for, for T.Y.'s uh, first home run, which leads me to a question for you. I was uh, going back and forth with a man you already referenced, Jesse Smith, Mariners Director of Analytics. And, you know, Jesse's just like over the text message. He's just, if there's an emoji for like drooling, like Jesse is just emoji drooling over Ty France, right? And I'm like, oh, hey, great. Like he guy hit basically 400 in the PCL. Like I can see his reference page. I can see the Fangraphs page. It all looks good. I said, what do you like the most about France? And he said, quality airborne contact which is something I have never, <laughs> this is never first heard before. Too, yeah. And so, uh, Jerry, I'm going to put you on the spot. What does he mean by quality airborne contact for T.Y. France? He hits the ball hard and he hits <laughs> it in the air. <laughs> and when it goes in the air, man, it is It quality. stays in the air. Yeah. Right? So, uh, Ty, and you can see it when you watch his at-bats. It's a, he's, he's just 25 years old and has, at this point, just cleared 250 Major League plate appearances. And his comfort in the, in the box is very obvious. He's a, he's a low-anxiety hitter. I could say the same about Luis Duran a low-anxiety hitter who understands how to put on an A-B, and he knows what he wants to get out of it, which is to, to, to get the ball in the air and to hit it hard. And, and you know, I, obviously we're excited to add Ty. He's been on our radar really for the last, I'd say, four years or so. We were, especially over the last two to three years, we have inquired multiple times on Ty France in a variety of different trade possibilities, and we were roughly shot down each time, and... You know, and I, I did. I, I shared my good emoji game with, uh, well, what I think is a good emoji game, but with Jesse when we were able to, to acquire Ty. And, you know, we, we all have had a, you know, a, a something of an itch for Ty France. And he fits us so well. He, his, his game represents the things that we value offensively. You know, his positional versatility gives us a nice bridge. His age and cr- controllability put him with a young group of like aged and talented players who we think have a chance to really, you know, excel together. Jemapel T.Y. 
Wow. I, I went to Viva welcome. La France, which, which, was, uh, which could, in some way, I think, work its way into a John Sterling voice and, and get a, I could get excited about I, it. I have, a lot of, I have a lot of off-season French to catch up on, I can tell. But if I had a full French home run call, like start to finish, wire to wire, that'd be great. Oh, for another time. Did it make you the first of your kind? I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's been taking me a long for time. Yeah. Hey, uh, Andres Munoz, uh, young dude, big dude, throws hard but does not seem to be a project. I mean, that, that typically when you have all those uh, things to preamble your way to the finish line, it's, yeah, but it's, there's going to be a lot of work. It doesn't seem like he's cut from that cloth right now. Tell us more about him. Well, you know, Andres, first, really not a project at all. He's just a hard, one of the hardest throwers on planet Earth, <laughs> but uh, averages 100 miles an hour with his fastball, 99.9 miles an hour uh, as a 20-year-old, debuted in the big leagues, pitched very well for the San Diego Padres in the big leagues uh, as uh, one of the youngest players in the league. The, the project part of Andres is obviously he is missing time right now with Tommy John surgery. So he had his TJ in March. Um, so I guess as, a, as it works out, his first day of, of a throwing program, which we now get to see him throw, was the day that we acquired him. So you know, we got to take control of his rehab. And as, as Tommy John surgery and, and recovery goes in today's time, the, the chances of recovery are astronomically high. And, and more often than not, it results in a similar or even greater level of velocity. I'm going I'm to push pause on the greater level of velocity <laughs> because you know, this side of Sid Finch, I don't know, you know where it goes from, from here. But he is up to a 103, 104 with his fastball. And he's got a dynamic breaking ball to go with it. So it's a, it really is a two-pitch mix. Uh, you know, he's going to issue a free pass from time to time. That's part of the price you pay for dynamic bat-missing ability and what we think is a potential major league closer who's still just 21 years old and, and will be with the Mariners for minimally for the next five years. Well, 104 seems like uh, absolutely pushing the human limit. <laughs> it seems how, that way. How much harder <laughs> can it be? Yeah, I, I, well... Until we, we go back and recover the, the, the footage of uh, the, the, the Griffey Jr. and, and Alex Rodriguez, where, <laughs> yes. I, I, where I can assure you that I fall well short of the 104-mile-an-hour mark. It is a, like, humans just weren't meant to throw that hard. Right. And, and right. you know, for, for guys like Aroldis Chapman and Andres Munoz, and, and, and there are others in the league dating back to, you know, the Randy Johnsons and Nolan Ryans and Billy Wagners who really pushed the limits of, of velocity. And, and we just keep seeing it go further and further. But I guess some of that is the specialty associated with bullpen pitching allows these guys to do things, you know, and, and just let it hang out in ways that you weren't able to before. I, I think a great example of this in, in our own house is Eric Swanson. You know, as a starter, Swanee's, you know, 91, 94, mostly about 92, 93 with his fastball. And we sent him to the bullpen thinking that we might see a spike and stuff within a week he was hitting 99 and pitching at 97 and 98 miles an hour which is just phenomenal all due to to the fact that we just shortened the outings and, and told him go let it hang out you know throw fastballs throw them high and throw them hard and and i think that's how you're able to see so much velocity from a lot of these back-end bullpen guys hmm. remember jerry let it eat let it eat. i'm sorry let it eat let it eat cut I mean, are we three, two, wanting this again? I mean, what's just have Gary talk so that it makes its way. <laughs> <in>. <laughs> hey, uh, you get a new catcher, Luis Torrens. 
Uh, a young man who, uh, Scott Service, of course, a former Major League catcher, speaks very highly of already. Uh, what's the book on Torrens? You know, really, Luis was, uh, he was the most unique of the four players that, that we acquired in this trade in that he was a 21-year-old Rule 5 pick out of A-ball by the Padres a, a few years back. Uh, they made it through an entire Major League season carrying him, him as roughly a third catcher and didn't get a lot of use, And uh, it's a, but a converted infielder who has great hands, who's a good athlete, who has a good baseball sense. And like I talked about, actually all three of the hitters that we acquired in this deal, super low anxiety hitters. And I think you've been able to see that with Luis even now when, when you see him out in the big leagues. I mean, it's he doesn't really let it get too high or too low in the batter's box. And uh, he works counts. He hits the ball hard. He uses the entire field to hit. He's got sneaky power all around the field. And after the Padres got through their Rule 5 you know, season with him, like they should have, they sent him back to A-ball for, to, to restart his player development. Because now you're dealing with a converted player who's had very limited exposure to catching, who just sat through a low-use major league season. So they sent him back to the Cal League and then progressed him to the Texas League. And in two years, in the Padres minor league system, age-appropriate for the levels he was playing at, he roughly blew it up offensively. He was awesome for the, for the A-ball double-A years. You know, we saw an increase in power and hard hit rates in the Texas League last year. And, you know, we had a chance to see those guys play a fair bit. And the combination of his, his hands as athleticism, what we think is a well-above-average throwing arm, catching metrics really like his framing ability that I don't think we're going to be able to see quite how good it can be because he's learning a whole pitching staff on the fly this summer or, or you know going into the fall but we're really excited to grab Luis and and you know of the guys in this deal he sometimes gets forgotten because he doesn't throw 100 and he's not a top 100 prospect or he's not the guy that's hitting fifth in the lineup today but we think he's every bit as valuable as any of the other players and what he presents to our future it's a really hard position to find players that have the balanced skill set that Luis has, and, and we think he can play in the big leagues for a long time. Jerry, the defense, even for a casual fan, is evident how improved the defense is this year than it was in 19. With Obviously, the, it's easy to forget, even though it was just a year ago. I mean, the injury to Kyle Seeger last year, the, the trickle, the domino effect of that could be felt immediately, and anybody could see that coming to some extent. This year, Jerry, I mentioned earlier the first road trip uh, maybe stands out as kind of a part of some turbulence for the Mariners' defense. But, man, since then, it has tightened up, and it's more than just not committing errors. Uh, what is it that you have been most pleased with when you take a look at how this Mariners team has stacked up defensively in 2020? I think it's that we're not committing errors. <laughs> no, no, I say that, and you, you just gave me the shivers when you recounted the, the Kyle Seeger injury last year and the domino effect that that took. And, you know, we did, we, we lived through a fair bit of time in 2019 where it was a, a, a little bit of a carnival when a ball was hit. And, and it was at any number of positions on the field. And, we were trying to find out about players, and, and, and we did. And, and we had a number of guys playing out of position, which was just unfair to them. And as a result, unfair to, to the result as we judged it. But this team is uh, th that we're dealing with in 2020 
first, you know, just adding Evan White to any uh, defensive scenario is a home run. He's he is uh, as good a defensive first baseman as you're going to see, uh, and and really has shown that in his time here. But I, I guess as an anchor, I can't say enough about the maturation of J.P. Crawford and and what he's done to it. Really, the the position that's often identified as the most significant on the field defensively. He has really stabilized our middle infield defense, and it's made everybody better. Um, the, the, the additions that we've made, the, the, the quality of what Dylan Moore brings defensively to any position on the field, what I think has been defensive improvement by Shed Long in a year where he's really struggled with the bat, he did get better defensively. And, and what we've done even behind the plate, whether it was Austin Nola or you know, now Luis Terenz, and, and the guys who have stepped in, you know, the Joseph Odoms and Joe Hudson's, the, the catching has been so much better than it has been in, in, the, the, in general. And in the outfield, while we're trying a number of guys that have not played a lot of outfield in their careers, you know, whether that be now Shed or what we saw from Sam Haggerty or Jose Marmalejos, it, they have done a remarkable job of learning on the fly. Credit to Perry Hill, who's coaching virtually, even though he's not here. Credit to Manny Acta. Credit to Joe Thurston. But most of all, credit to the fact that the the programs that we implemented last year when Perry Hill joined our staff, you know, where we worked on defense religiously daily. From day one of spring training, we'll do it on Sundays in the big leagues, which is just unheard of in today's time. You know, And I guess the, the our crowning defensive, uh, I guess, jewel would be that last year, in a year where we were nowhere near qualifying for the postseason, we were out. We went out and did our Sunday workout on the final day of the season and practiced defense before we went out to play the game. And it was not because we scheduled it that way as a staff. It was because our players asked for it. We've done it every other day. We're doing it today. And uh, that's been the driving force. We're going to get better at defense. We are considerably more athletic with players who do have defensive chops to begin with. And they're just showing you what they can do at the big league level night in and night out because of good coaching, a belief that this is is how winning happens and their desire to work. I think defense is critical, but it doesn't get talked about as much as offense or as much as pitching, and partly because I think it's just easier to talk about offense. You have the numbers in front of you to talk about pitching. You have the same sort of thing. Defense, we've never had the same sort of data to talk about. Now, we have a lot more than we used to, but in the public sphere, it's not the same as batting average or, or go down the list. Do you ever think there'll be a time where we talk about defense like we talk about offense? Or we have, like, rock-solid data that everyone can look at and, and judge equally, uh, you know, compare Seager to every other third baseman in the league, for example? Yeah, I'd like to believe there is. I, I, I wouldn't have told you 35 years ago that, that there was going to be such, you know, the, the advances in, in, in the metrics the way we see them today or the things that we're able to track that we just couldn't in the, in the 80s and 90s. But I, I, it's hard to imagine uh, uh, one statistic mm-hmm. that will be the, the silver bullet on defense because there, there is some subjectivity to it. And, you know, we're still learning a lot about defensive metrics. Most of them are imperfect. And, you know, and most 
sabermetricians or analysts understand the imperfections associated with defensive metrics. But there are so many things that we are able to call from the, the, the defensive metrics that matter and, and that we really do pay attention to. And, you know, and, and some of them, you know, like the, the most valuable information that we get now is often, you know, gleaned from StatCast. And, mm-hmm. you know, when we're able to take real athletic movements, how much ground a player is, is making up to go make a play, you know, the, the, the rarity of that play being made, you'll see you can go out on the public. Right now it's 2020 information is a little tougher because of the sample size. Mm-hmm. But you can go look at 2019 numbers, you know, on MLB.com and just go by way of baseball savant. And you can pull up the, the defensive metrics from, from StatCast and just take a look at who is more likely to make catches that are, you know, 40 to 60 percent likely, as opposed to those who might make catches that are 30 to 40 percent likely, etc. You know, the, the guy who's making 90 to 100, you know, that's nailing it in 90 to 100 is just as valuable. And those guys usually man the middle of your field. But the guys who can do those things that few people are able to do really make it spectacular to watch a, a defensive game the way it is when, when hitters hit home runs. And there are a lot of teams right now that, that and I guess – most notably the investment that the Cubs made in Jason Hayward a couple of years back. It wasn't because they, they saw in Jason Hayward a 50 homer guy with 150 RBI potential and a, you know, and a, and a thousand OPS. They, they knew that the, the, the total of his skills built around an, an incredibly good defensive skill set brought great value to the whole team and their ability to win. And, and I do think more and more decisions will be made like that as we move into the future in baseball. To touch on one guy that you referenced, Jerry, talking about the defense. I mean, Scott has talked about J.P. Crawford it's almost every other day. He's praising J.P. He has said repeatedly how J.P. wants the ball hit to him. I and mean, we see the confidence. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we see the flashy plays, but to be fair, we saw flashy plays from J.P. last year. I mean, some maybe even of the more flashy variety than what we've seen this year. Uh, but it's been the routine ball, it seems like, more often than not, that is now just it's 100 times out of 100 for J.P. Is that part of the growth for J.P. Crawford? It really is just consistency. And, you know, and I say this knowing that there's 17, 18, you know, whatever, how many games we have, we have left to play. Uh, J.P. will have – he will make a mistake. But what we've seen from J.P. this year is in that the, the plays that are made 90 to 100% of the time, he is making them 98% of the time. I believe J.P.'s only made one error this year with his glove. Yeah, he's, he's made a couple of throwing errors. And when we acquired JP from the Phillies, he was coming off of a pretty turbulent, you know, I, I guess, introduction to the big leagues as a defender. When de- defense, dating back to JP as a high school sophomore, defense is, is what he was hanging his hat on. He's always had the tools. He's had the arm strength. He has the range. Uh, and, and for him to struggle the way he did coming from uh, through the Phillies system uh, at the big league level, it was mostly lack of focus and sloppy throws. He's always had awesome hands. And, and you know, again, JP's work ethic, working with Perry Hill and, and just digging in in spring training 2000. 2019 with Bone, it, he he got better at it and really turned a corner. And here in 2020, he just took it to another level. And you know his his throwing accuracy from virtually any spot on the field, while on the move, while in the air, it's just it's been awesome. And again, not to continue to beat the the drum, but when you have Evan White standing over there, it does give an incredible boost of confidence to the other infielders to just 
get it moving toward first base and he'll make the play. And, and more often than not, that's been the case as well. Jerry, we want to do a, a deep dive on Dylan Moore on the podcast today because, I mean, his season has been really inspiring when you look at a guy who's had a kind of a windy road to get where he is now and had his first dip with the Mariners last year and now a chance to build on it this season. I, he had the injury, the wrist injury, which came at a horrible time when he was playing so well and you wondered if he'd be able to regain some of that, what felt like kind of magic that he'd had before the injury. You know, for me, Jerry, Dylan was going to be the answer to the trivia question, who had the great catch in Felix's final start as a Mariner? Like, that was going to be Dylan Moore's legacy, right? When coming into this year, we, we didn't, hadn't seen a ton more on a consistent long-term basis, but he's showing now that he's been one of the best producers in a lineup that has had some really good stretches this year, and he's playing everywhere for you and seeming to play, at worst, at an average level at the major leagues. Uh, what is it that Dylan Moore has impressed you so much about this year? So, you know, I, I could go fairly deep on Dylan Moore, uh, and, and probably will. <laughs> you know, I'm not afraid. But with Dylan, following the 2018 season, when we decided we were going to go through this, this roster revamp, and you know, one of the very first things we did was, was we identified – undervalued players and we went through an exercise in our front office feel who are the players out there that are not on 40-man rosters that we can go out and access you know be it minor league free agents waiver wire claims are there undervalued assets that we can you know be aggressive in trying to trade with other clubs to to acquire and you know that year Dylan Moore was coming off a really solid minor league season after what was really not a very solid 2017. You know, he really struggled in 17. He was a multiple-time minor league free agent after uh, you know, playing in the systems with the Texas Rangers, the Atlanta Braves, and ultimately the Milwaukee Brewers. Uh, we got very aggressive with Dylan because we saw what you just mentioned. We saw a really versatile player who had played a number of positions on the field who we thought was an exceptional athlete. And we knew going into 2019 that we were going to have opportunity. So we had 40-man roster space and we had opportunity. And we went out at the time he was a 26-year-old minor league free agent who'd not yet appeared in a major league game and and we threw a major league 40 man roster spot at him and and asked if he was uh, interested and told him that there was a great opportunity roughly nothing standing between him and an opening day spot as a utility player other than his own performance and uh, we brought him to spring training and he was really impressive just in his athleticism and as you know, last year he was he, he was hot and cold in terms of contact. You know, he'd go through long stretches where he's trying to figure out his swing. He has gone through a fairly significant you know adjustment with his swing over the last let's call it three years. And you know, the one thing we could always count on is you could throw Demo out there at any position on the field, and and he was going to give you above average defense. And then lo and behold, we threw him out here against Boston in that opening series, and he made like, three errors and three plays, and and you felt. Terrible terrible for him because we all think he's an exceptionally good defensive player. Flash forward to 2020, he comes into spring training in the the, the best shape of his life because Absolutely. that's what players do. And, and he truly did. He went home. He got stronger. He he made his swing even more efficient. There, I mean, there is not a lot of wasted 
space in, in, in Dylan's swing, and he has real power. And that was evident last year, even in bursts. He has real power to every part of the field. And, you know, when this season started, we thought he'd do the same thing, just move him around the field, take advantage of the versatility. And about a week into to summer camp, when we were still, you know, minus Dylan, he was obviously, you know, out with, with uh, COVID. We were wondering, you know, what the what the result was going to be when he came back. You know, is he going to is he going to be back on the field? Is he going to catch up quickly? And about a week into our regular season games, you know, after it was very clear that he didn't miss a beat and he was doing the same things that we'd seen him do in Peoria uh, and, and, and that we believed him capable of doing, Justin Hollander, our assistant general manager, was, was sitting with me one day watching a game and he said, Dylan Moore, our bringer of rain. And I, and I said, what do you mean? He said, he said, 2012 Josh Donaldson to the Oakland A's, that is our Dylan Moore. And, uh, and really, he has been that good this year. He's uh, in uh, something north of 100 plate appearances. I think he's about a, a, a buck and a quarter now or thereabouts. He's got a, a 150 uh, weighted runs created plus. His, his exit velocity, his hard hit rates, his, his slugging percentage, every measure that you can look under the hood to try to determine the legitimacy of a breakout like this, every one of those measures points in the direction of, yes, this is legitimate. He's, he's hitting the ball hard. He's hitting at a great angle. He's showing you a power and speed combo that's very real. And all of the data under the hood suggests this is real. And, and it's happening now over enough of a plate appearance sample to really take it seriously, especially when you're talking about an athlete who you could put at any position on the field and he plays above average defense. It's a, we're thrilled with his development, and it's, it's made this season so much more fun to watch. I mean, your reference is WRC Plus. He's hanging out in the top 10 in the American League. I mean, it is really impressive. How long do you need to see, if your expectation level for a player is here, how long do you need to see the production to say, no, he's here? We're there, man. <laughs> We're there. That's it. We, we, we've always believed in his ability to be a good player. Yeah, he, again, you know, like we've talked about with maybe JP's defense, Dylan just took it to a different level, and and if you would have told me that 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 Dylan would spend the the, the bulk of his Mariners career as our top utility player and super versatile guy who provided a power and speed combo, I, I would have been thrilled. You know, if you would have told me that over the course of the the last two years, if you date back to opening day of last year, and I, I believe this is factually accurate. Dylan Moore is one of 20 players in the big leagues to have hit 15 homers and stolen 20 bases. It's a like he's doing things that that really jump out and and that's just counting stats. When you do look under the hood at that at that data, you mentioned that he's you know top tennis in the American League and weighted runs created plus. You know if you sort by by the the plate appearances. Mm-hmm. But the, the reality is that if you in, encompass all that I just mentioned, the hard hit rates, the slugging percentage, the, the exit velocities, he's in the top 40 overall in all of Major League Baseball in, in all of those categories. I mean, he hits, he's hitting with the big boys, and it's, uh, it's very real what he's doing, and, and I don't anticipate that it's not something he can sustain because he, he works hard, and he's in an environment where we believe in him, and he's going to get the opportunity every day. I believe this is factually accurate is now the new lead into every stump JD. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> pretty pretty sure. Pretty sure. Uh, hey, when 
this whole 2020 thing was just getting off the ground and uh, spring training and then everything gets shut down. During the quarantine months, uh, Gary was in his home in Seattle and he had cassette tapes hanging from the ceiling. He was going through Mariners archives for Mariners classics on 710 ESPN. Gary, in the span of three months, I'm going to say consumed more Mariners baseball audio than almost any walking person on the earth and he might even rival the great Kevin Kremen. So with that in mind, Gary, I would like you to share to all of us what you uncovered during quarantine. First of all, that's accurate. I think <laughs> I listened to 900 Mariner games in, in that span. I mean, it was it was constant. So in one of my favorite sequences, I mean, I, I don't even know how to describe this thing. It's great. So it's, Jerry, you are pitching against the Mariners in Colorado. And we're going to start this sequence with the great Dave Niehaus, which is just beautiful. You are pitching against Alex Rodriguez to start this sequence, and then you'll face Ken Griffey Jr. This is great. And Jerry DePoto to the plate with the 2-2 pitch to Alex. Swing and a miss. He struck him out on the fastball. Two down. And here comes Junior. Junior, who has been blank tonight. He's 0 for 4. The third baseman is running out into left field. I don't know what Vinny Castillo is going after out there, but they're going with four outfielders. Okay, they're going to put four outfielders out there against Junior. Three infielders, four outfielders. That's the first time we've seen this one. Here comes the stretch and the pitch on the way to Ken Griffey Jr. And it is a strike on the outside corner. You know, if they were going to do it, I, th I think I'd shift him around a little bit. Yeah, more. I would too. I'd move him around, to, especially the one in left center field. Who's the left field? Who is Bichette? So four outfielders for Ken Griffey Jr. Don't butt, Junior. Go ahead and swing. <laughs> oh, yeah. You got to swing here. Here's the pitch on the way, and Junior fouls it straight back and out of play. Speaking of long home runs, the longest home run ever hit here was hit by Mike Piazza of the Dodgers in 97 off Darren Holmes. 496 feet to left field. Only four men have been in the upper deck in right field. Here's the pitch. Junior takes high. The longest home run hit into the upper deck in right field hit by Larry Walker. 493 feet off Mike Oakwist of Oakland in 97. And the other three to go upstairs in right field. Ray Lankford of the Cardinals. Walker again. And Ken Caminiti. Here's the pitch. Junior is swaying and a miss. He struck him out. So here in the ninth inning, no runs, no hits, no errors, and no body left. We'll go to the bottom of the ninth. Hang on time. The Mariners four, the Rockies two. Jerry, Jerry, pitching in the ninth, facing A-Rod and Junior. Good stuff, Jerry. So, so the excitement I was feeling was kind of dulled down by him recounting the, the, the four home runs in the upper deck because, yes, I did surrender the <laughs> one to Ray Langford. <laughs> I, I remember it uh, as if it were yesterday. I, 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 do, I do remember that night against the, the Mariners. We played uh, uh, that series, that interleague series against the Mariners in Denver 
And you know, one of the games in that series had a, a pretty significant rain delay, as uh, as I recall. And we had a at the time we were trying to warm somebody up to come into the game, and we were trying to rush it to get the game in so that it was an official game in the fifth inning. And I, I'm I'm trying to remember ex- exactly the scenario here, and. Curtis Laskanik, one of our relievers who was warming up, you know, d- decided, all right, the best way for me to handle this is to delay the game. You know, can I just delay what's happening here? And and uh, he just he threw a warm up pitch in the right center field bullpen, uh, and he threw it off of the the right field out outer wall. So he threw it over the right fielder's head and uh, and, and bounced off the retaining wall down the right field line. So easily. 200 feet from the from the pitcher's mound in the in the bullpen it just threw about 200 feet rattled it off the wall and the umpire had no option but to call time and if i recall correctly the right fielder at the time in a, a fairly lopsided game was butch husky <laughs> and butch butch turned around and and looked at curtis then he looked at the guys in the bullpen cage gave us the, the the most you can't really be serious you know look in this moment and then as slowly as you could possibly walk over to the ball, walked over to the ball, flipped it into the stands, and then walked back to right field. And all the while, you know, Curtis wound up getting another 15 pitches in in the bullpen, and and it served its purpose wonderfully well. And we sent a telegram of thanks to, to Butch by by way of a win. That's unbelievable. Yeah. That's, it was fun. It fun is moment. So elementary and yet so not thought of. <laughs> yeah. Stop the game. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you remember what it was like to have the? four-man outfield i mean this was before ahead of the times at this point there's a, well a four-man outfield the we in in that time i was probably far more a ground ball pitcher than a fly ball pitcher you know but the my general thought when ken griffey walks into the box is you know if i can get him to hit it on the ground anywhere if he would choose to bunt sign me up i'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm all in because the you know the, the chances of me coming out of that with with you know i will say this of the three true outcomes, the one that that came out was not the one I would have expected. <laughs> so, you know, having four outfielders, at least it gave them a chance to run down something that was going to, you know, get close to to walls. But, you know, I, I I don't even know that I can remember another time that we did that during my time with the Rockies. It was kind of unique to that moment and Junior at that time in his career when he was the the best player in the American League. I love how ahead of his time, Gary, Red was when you hear him go, Yes. You can't bunt. Don't, Don't bunt, Junior. Swing away. Whereas, I mean, people today are like, oh, you should definitely bunt. <laughs> I mean, you got the whole the whole left side is open now. They're giving you a base hit. And Red's like, well, forget Swing. that, man. You're here for one reason. Get it into the stands. I believe I was thinking through, like, taking the sign from, from the catcher. I was, I was thinking to myself, right there. You know, it's, it's there. Take <laughs> it, brother. Point, <laughs> yeah. You're going Granky style and saying, That's right. right there. The strikeout of Griffey and then the roar of the crowd. I mean, that place sounded packed. That, just in that moment right there, had been so cool. So, you know, one of the, the nuances of playing for the Rockies at that, at that time, and, you know, we weren't a great team. We, were, we typically hovered around 500. You know, a good year would win 84, 85, and, you know, and a bad year would win 78. We, we were never too far off of either of those numbers. The, the, but we were always in the mix headed into September. Um, one of the nuances of playing with the Rockies at that time is from you know their inception as a as a an expansion franchise in 1993 at Old Mile High, through the first five years I think at at, at Coors Field they sold out every game, oh. every game was sold out and no one ever left you know and and 
for a lot of my time with the Rockies, I always pitched. I pitched in the eighth or in the ninth inning, and and uh, and you could feel the ground moving under. I mean, it was fifty thousand people, no one left, and the game was never over. I mean, it was like right. the. I mean, it was literally a pinball machine. So it, I, I, you could go into the ninth inning down by seven, and you had a chance. And so the crowd would just be going nuts the whole game, and you could go out and pitch the ninth inning up by seven, and and it was you know it was a top stepper where you know, anything could happen so it was an exciting place to play in the best or worst of times especially at that time because of how many people were always there gary great find man Nicely yeah that done. was fun hey we're going to get to stump jd which is a question that gary posed to me a short while ago and i think it's fantastic i really enjoyed walking through it uh, I had significantly more time. Yeah, we don't have as much time, Jerry. Just just a warning. Yeah, we, we don't have, have four we innings don't have four here to innings. play with. Okay, so Gary, uh, spot me here to make sure I'm phrasing this correctly. Okay. Jerry, there are five active major leaguers who own a franchise record number of home runs. In other words, they are the fill-in-the-blanks team's all-time home run hitter. Okay? Of the five players, three of them are still with said team two of them have moved on to a new team can you name all five can i name all five uh giancarlo stanton marlon james yes wow that was Uh, that's the dark horse i kind of think really yeah you kind of yes i think so because you you forget you forget because he hasn't he's been out of sight out of mind for two years I, i would say that's that's probably right uh, I'm going to say Stanton. I'm going to say uh, Mike Trout, yep, Angels. Yes. That's what all uh, this came up. Yep, recently. Uh, and, and I'll tell you a, a funny story on that one. So Mike is a rookie. and Are you buying time right now, Jerry? <laughs> no, because I can't. I, my, my mind you doesn't can't. work this way. I know okay. yours can. I, I, <laughs> but uh, I'm standing at the cage while Mike Trout's taking a round of batting practice as a 21-year-old rookie. And Tim Salmon, uh, whose record Mike just surpassed, was standing at the cage. And, you know, this is maybe Mike's first month in the big leagues. And, and, uh, and, and Tim leaned over and kind of leaned into me and he said, what kind of power do you think he's got? You know, at this point, we just don't know. You know, it, it, we, it, it hasn't manifested itself like it, it's clear today. And I said, I, I don't, 35, you know, and he looked at me and went, 35 is a big number. <laughs> and I said, I think he can do it. And, and, and uh, you know, lo and behold, these, these years later, he's, he's turned into well, Hall of Famer, really, just warming up. But I'll say Mike Trout, Angels, I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with, it should be easier than this if there's five. There are some. There's a couple of sneaky guys like the, still. Yeah. That okay. should be layups. Can I go with Miguel Cabrera of the Tigers, no, or is that going to fall short? That's a great guess, but I also had that guess. Um, let's think about the – That's not right? That's Miguel's not right. Not no, right. I'm sorry. Okay. That was my, that was my, read between the lines. That's my polite way of saying no. You're wrong. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> um, first player – right, Gary? First player ever drafted by this franchise? In its new iteration, is this correct? I think it is. Maybe you should have looked it up before you no, said. I, what is it? What was Jerry's line? I believe this to be correct. Uh, factually accurate. Factually yeah, accurate. Right. Yeah. Uh, we don't see him because he's in the other league. Paul he, Goldschmidt. No, that's a good guess. That's though a great I also guess. had that guess. That was a great league. Our great league. Great guess. Um, no, this player was drafted um, fourth overall in 2005. 
fourth overall, 2005, which was an awesome draft. Yeah, this was the – Ryan Braun. Well, that is – That is that, one, uh, yeah. Is he also drafted fourth He was fifth. Okay. Uh, right? Ryan Braun is the Brewers. Yeah. yeah. So, you got that one. But – Evan Longoria. Yes. That's one. Yeah. Okay, That's right. so we yeah. – Who selected before Ryan Braun. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right? This was uh, – he's played all 14 years with the same team. Yeah. 14 years of the same team. So we just need one more. Yeah, one more. Process, Clearly, I did not know the, the answer to this. In the process of getting to the goal line, you have stumbled you've upon. Tri- you've just tripped yeah. over two hurdles that have been gold. That's what I do. I rumble, I bumble, <laughs> I stumble. But, you uh, know, eventually we get there. Uh, twice an all-star. Yeah, in grade school, by alphabetical order, his name would have been called last. Wow. Twice an all-star with the last. I, I, this Ryan Zimmerman. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have got that. I wouldn't have got that. Really? I wouldn't have got that. Yep. Oh, There's okay. a, because I, w- I honestly, without looking at Ryan Zimmerman's background, uh, there, you know, the, the the 1980s Montreal Expos were sneaky awesome. Mm-hmm. Like the great players that they had in in that period of time, the Andre Dawson's, the Gary Carter's, and I, I probably naturally would not have have gravitated toward Ryan Zimmerman. To be All right. fair. All right. Well. I, this is a great question. Gary came up with yeah. it. I stunk today. Ago. I stunk today. I mean, it was all right. You got you you fell in. I think you got Stan, for whatever reason Stanton. I find it being most difficult. So you got that. That's one I did not get. Unless you see him hit home runs, because the, once you see them, you can't unsee oh, them. He, he <laughs> they, hit one. He hit one. I don't know if it predated you. He hit one under like what where Edgar's number eleven is in the pen, and it like landed into the burger stand. Oh no, I, I, I recall you, this. You, okay. Yeah, I recall this. I mean, that was terrifying. All right. Uh, you know, a so-so effort on Stump JD today, but we'll move on. Um, um, hey, we got some good uh, fan questions. In fact, we had two two fans ask a similar question. Uh, Stan, partial to that name, uh, asked the same question as Ryan. Uh, Jerry, what do you think about robo-umps? And um, Stan even wondered what you think that might do if, if robo-umps are ever uh, put into practice, what that might do to catchers in terms of their value and uh, how they're paid maybe. Well, you know, I think automated strike zones in general are, it, I think it's happening. It's, it's, you know, we are, we're not quite there yet in terms of the, the absolute precision technology, but we're getting close. And, and I do think if, if you have the ability to, to be correct, then you should be. And, 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 I, and I think that's generally where the game is headed. And, you know, I, I, the game needs umpires. And I, and I do believe, especially with the, the, the calls on bases, that, that that's required and managing the game uh, that's required. But managing the strike zone, you know, in an automated way is it, not only do I believe it, it should happen, I believe it's going to happen probably sooner than later. And, you know what that does to to defensive catching. There's, I do still think that the relationship that exists between a pitcher and a catcher, and the comfort that you feel throwing to a catcher, knowing that he's that he's putting the right fingers down, you're not constantly having to shake and, and debate with your catcher. That there is some type of relationships, you know, some sync between the two of you. The comfort that that gives you to execute pitches in the big leagues, because you still have to execute the pitch, whether it's going to be called a ball or a strike, you have to execute the pitch. I've had this debate with many, many people in baseball over the last couple of years. I still think the good defensive catcher is a thing. 
it's it's required. You can't just put someone back there, you know, who's a who's a box of rocks and is just going to throw a glove up, but he can hit. <laughs> That's a like I think that is the fallacy in, in all of this because if you do that, your pitchers suffer. And at the end of the day, the game is still about scoring runs and not allowing the other team to score. And sometimes the easiest way to do that is not allowing the other team to score. And I think catcher will always be an important element of that. Uh, Jordan asked a, a question that I, I have to admit until until just 10 seconds ago, I misread. Um, <laughs> however, in both Jordan's version of the question and my version, I think they're both great questions. Um, what I thought Jordan asked is, what is your all-time favorite dessert? Uh, Jordan wants to know, what's your fall time <laughs> favorite dessert as in as in autumn uh so i'll ask uh, either one jerry uh when the leaves start to fall your favorite uh, go-to dessert or or your all-time whatever whatever strikes your fancy whatever cleanses your palate the best i have two uh and and one for me is like my year-round like favorite go-to dessert would be like a, a an almond olive oil cake Oh uh, my come on. What are is, you I, doing, man? What are you doing? I this mean is, it's come true. On. I, I'm I'm I, I, I cannot tell a lie. Come it's, on. It's, on my birthday when my wife asks me, Honey, what do you what, what do you want? And I, I tell her I would love oh I would love God. an almond olive oil cake. <laughs> <laughs> it's you've never had her almond olive oil. Hey, I can't I'm make sh- one, but she she nails it. I'm sure it's amazing. I really am sure. It sounds delightful. Yeah. Or I could go for a good carrot cake as well, which is also good. Yeah, but the 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 is, almond and olive oil cake is there, is, is there broccoli rob in the cake? Is there, there can be. <laughs> that can be part of it. Can be part of dinner or just an adornment. It could be the yeah, garnish sure, right. on, on top of garnish. the cake. Okay, is that a, it would, an almond uh, olive oil cake be considered a fall time dessert as well? I think so. You know, okay. almonds all make seasons. me think fall. You all know? seasons. Yeah, olive oil makes me think oh. all seasons. Okay, yeah. are you more cake or pie? Uh, probably more cake than pie, okay. but. You know, you could twist my arm and do a pie. You eat pumpkin pie Thanksgiving? I do. I enjoy pumpkin okay. pie. Likewise. Uh, apple pie. What is your favorite pie? Uh, probably pumpkin. Although, if, like, if, you, if you gave me my druthers of year-round pies. I do. When I was growing up as, as a kid in Jersey, you were always a couple of hundred feet from, from a bakery. <laughs> and the, we had a bakery nearby that did a coconut custard pie that I, I've, mm. I've never had a, a pie that I liked more than that pie when I was growing up. And I've never been able to replicate it. So I just don't get coconut custard pies anymore because it it'll never make me feel the same way i felt when i was eight years old eating that coconut custard pie and uh the the but the the latter you know like the the grown-up version of me gravitated toward almond and olive oil which is you know, i sure. it's, it's just a true Sorry. story Sorry. i have footage of my my birthday cake from this year if you'd like to see it my wife did a phenomenal job on on said cake it's very erudite of you uh, is there is this a uh is it frosted? Is it no, it's no. got like a glaze. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's sweet, you know, but it's like got a, like an olive oil glaze. Well, uh, that, that, there's no such thing as an olive oil glaze. I just said there was. There's what is that definitely even? an olive oil glaze. <laughs> it happens. All right. All right. Uh, got is, this like, is this like her, her like, go, this is like family recipe? No, it's a, it's, it's something that, that I tasted at a restaurant oh. on a, like, some years back, and I said, sure. I love this cake. And she... And she said... I love you. You love this cake. <laughs> Let me reverse What can I do this. to bring these loves together? <laughs> so lo and behold, she became an expert at making, you know, olive oil, almond okay. cake. All right. All right. Uh, Jordan, thank you for 
the last 10 minutes of our podcast. We appreciate that. Um, the I, rest of the world is sorry, but they, yeah. <laughs> thank you, Jordan. Uh, Jerry, we appreciate your, your time, as always. <laughs> uh, don't, don't judge us based on our actions. just based us off of our words. So we, we appreciate your time. This was a lot of fun for at least two of us. And uh, we appreciate you hanging out and talking all things pies versus cakes. Thanks, fellas. Look forward to the next one. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.